And uh, last week, you remember, we started Romans chapter 10. We've been coming through the book of Romans, and I've been showing you almost uh, chapter by chapter, breaking each chapter down so you could understand this great book. I think Romans is probably one of the greatest books in the Bible uh, for you and me as a Christian, simply because of all of the content that it deals with as far as understanding the Scriptures and what God is doing. Remember I told you that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he wrote it from the standpoint of, of giving you and me, the body of Christ, a complete understanding of all the doctrinal things and all of the things that God wants us to know that change from the coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And you're going to find that in, in these passages uh, uh, coming through here, uh, some incredible material that we've talked about. And we started uh, in chapter 1 and worked our way through. And then uh, we showed you how that chapter 9, 10, and 11 all focus on God dealing with the nation of Israel. And we took a lot of time in chapter 9, and I showed you that chapter 9, uh, really chapter 9, 10, and 11 is kind of in a progression of how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, He did it this way that you and I would understand kind of like the big picture of what God is doing. And in chapter 9, we saw how uh, He showed us why Israel got into the problems that they got into. He also showed us that how they were God's people in the Old Testament, but because of sin, they lost the blessings of God and were relegated uh, kind of on the back burner, so to speak. Uh, and then God uh, began to turn His attention to the Gentile nations uh, under the New Testament concept of the church. And that's where we've started uh, last week. We started talking about chapter 10 and God sending the gospel to the Gentiles because of the nation of Israel's rejection. Once we get through chapter 10, then we're going to come back or move through chapter 11, and we're going to see that chapter 9 shows us how Israel was God's people, and uh, they rejected God, so God kind of put them on the back burner, and then God turned His attention to the nation of Israel, and then we're going to see in chapter 11 how that God in the future is again going to restore the nation of Israel as His people. Two components that your Bible is built around. We studied it in a Bible basics class. The first component is the Old Testament nation of Israel. God dealing with the world through the nation of Israel. Once they rejected God, God uh, and then turns His attention to the Gentiles and calls out a, uh, a body to Himself of the Gentiles by which He uh, then uh, takes the gospel and accomplishes His purpose in the New Testament through the church. And we're going to start the New Testament in our Bible basic class this week and then put the whole thing together for you. Now, we started and we talked about chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to go back there again today. And I want to read it for you. And it says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for those that have come out today in this foul weather with all the rain, Lord. But uh, we know that, uh, that in this book, Lord, is all the blessings that you have for us today. And Lord, we pray that your spirit will open up our hearts and give us what we need uh, Lord, and we'll thank you and praise you for all you do now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, last week we started coming through here, and I want to just recap to bring everybody up to speed, and then we're going to move on. We've talked about, first of all, uh, Paul's burden for the nation of Israel. 
We talked about how frustrating it is, or it was for Paul, how that he saw the nation of Israel. He understood the nation of Israel and all that God had for them. And he sees they're rejecting God and they're throwing it all away, so to speak. And he feels so frustrated for them because he understands what God has for them and they cannot see it for themselves. Remember, I made the parallel that that's like being a pastor today, looking at people's lives and seeing what potential they really have. There's nothing worse in Christianity than a young man or a young lady or a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or whoever who wastes their life because of the fact they never really find out what God wants to do with their life or maybe they don't care. But our attention, you remember, last week was based on verse 3. And this is where I want to pick up today. A great concept of our spiritual growth process. And that's where it was talking about in verse 3 that they have a zeal but not according to knowledge. And we made the parallel to you and me as Christians, how that, that uh, young Christians, you know, uh, they always have a zeal, especially young men. I've dealt with young men all of my life and taught them the Bible. It's been my, my, my whole life's calling, as I told you last week. And I've seen just about every kind of young man and young lady that there probably is to see. I've experienced uh, all kinds of experiences with them. I've seen some good ones, some bad ones, some really good ones, some really bad ones. But the bottom line is this. All of them start out, me including, the same way, and that is that we have a zeal. I don't want anybody uh, that, uh, that doesn't have a zeal for God. A zeal for God is absolutely uh, imperative in your relationship with God because it's that zeal that will carry it through. You see a lot of people that come to churches, you know, they get saved uh, or they come to church and they say, oh, I really want to serve God, and about four weeks later you never see Him again. See, their zeal is temporary. Their zeal was based on maybe some emotional thing that they went through. Bottom line is this. A real zeal for God will never go away. I got my, when I got saved 30-some years ago, it was, it, was, it was absolutely a life-changing thing for me. And, and if people want to know what's wrong with me, people want to know what, what, why I am the way I am, it's real simple. I got a zeal the day I got saved, and I just never lost it. In fact, I got to confess to you, it's probably gotten worse. <laughs> and it turns into a passion, but it's got to be according to to knowledge. And then we looked at another great verse. I call this the great balancing verse in John chapter 1 verse 17. It's a great definitive verse that shows you and I how to balance our life. You know, balance is so important. I don't care what you do in life, you have to learn. I think that's one of the greatest things a Christian has to be able to learn to do. That is balance their life. Balance everything in their life. And then you know what? You know why that's so hard? Because once you get the balance, then you got to learn to balance the balance. It's never a time in your life where you don't have to learn to balance things. And that's the key to, in my mind anyhow, to really being a successful Christian with all of the things that you get in the Bible. And so John chapter 1 verse 17, oh what a great verse it is. It says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now grace and truth here uh, versus the law. And what a great contrast it is. We talked about the fact that truth and grace deal with the New Testament where the law dealt with Moses in the Old Testament. And when Jesus Christ established His church, He established that church with these two concepts, grace and truth. Grace and truth. And remember I told you, truth is knowing the Bible. But grace then is knowing how to use the Bible that God gave you. You find a lot of churches that have truth, but they have no grace. You find a lot of churches today that have grace, 
but they have no truth. You find a lot of God's people that have truth, but they have no grace. Or they have grace, but they have no truth. The balance in your life and my life is to have the truth, but also to have the grace to understand how to use the Word of God in any given situation in your life. And this is where we focused last week. This is where we focused, to talk about the danger of young Christian men and ladies. You know, the formula for disaster in a young Christian's life. I mean, absolutely. The formula for disaster is, in young men's life is have knowledge and have a zeal, but have no grace. And we saw last week when Paul was writing to Timothy that he talked about not being a novice because they get lifted up in pride. And we talked about pride. Pride leads to arrogancy. Arrogancy leads to being puffed up. And then puffed up and arrogancy and pride lead to, lead to self-righteousness. And that's the problem we find ourselves in many times in dealing with young men and young ladies. And then I gave you the number one ingredient that I look for in dealing with people. I told you last week that my calling in life is real simple. Take young men and young ladies, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, young couples, I don't care who. And if you want to learn the Bible and you want to understand the balance of life, then I'm your guy. I want to help you. I've done it all in my life. And that's all really the thing I know how to do in life is to take people who want to learn the Bible, not only teach them the Bible, but then show them how to use the Bible that I give them. And I told you that uh, this number of things that I look for. I look for character. I look for integrity. I look for the ability to have self-discipline. I look for the ability to be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. But I told you the number one ingredient that I look for in people, the number one thing that you have to have to learn anything about God and to grow through the process that I'm going to show you here in just a little while is to have a teachable spirit. If you're not able to be taught, if you're not able to submit yourself to an authority that, uh, that maybe knows more about it than you do, and that's part of the problem you have with, with, uh, with people, you know, they get, especially young men, they get to the point where they get a little Bible under their belt and they think they know about it, more about it than anybody in the world. And that's not the way it works because you've got to have experience and you've got to have the process in your life that you be taught the things. And that simply comes down to submitting yourself to God's structure and authority and learning what God has for you to learn. You know, I... We've got a number of young men that, uh, that I think are really good preachers. And God in the last couple of months have brought in a couple of other guys who are really good preachers already. And I'm looking forward, and I've already got, God's already shown me some things that, that we want to do to really enhance that. Because I think the worth of any church is not only the men and the women who really know the Bible, but the men and women, uh, or the men anyhow, who are really understanding the concepts and are good preachers. And I, I try, all my life, I've, I've helped young men uh, uh, learn how to preach. And, uh, you know, I, I see this the same way as you looking at the zeal and not according to knowledge. You know, very few young men are good preachers right out of the gate. And I remember the first time I preached, you know, I, I, uh, I listened to myself and it was terrible, you know. And I, and I tell young preachers, you know what, if you want to learn to preach, the first thing you do is tape yourself. Because we get this idea that we really sound good, but when you play it back, ha <laughs> ha, who is that guy, you know? And I think that uh, that helps you. We got the idea, and young guys get this all the time. They think that if they get more opportunities to preach, they'll become better preachers. I told them when we started to deal with our guys, I said, no, that's not true. Getting more ch chances to preach don't make you a better preacher. It just gives you more opportunity to preach more bad messages. And that's not what you want. 
There's got to be a process in learning how to preach, just like there's a process of learning grace and truth. And that process is really the key uh, to, be able to, to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I, I think preaching is an art form. I was talking to William about this this week, and uh, I said, you know what? Preaching is like, uh, is like, painting, like an artist painting a picture. It's like a musician uh, composing some great uh, piece of music. When a painter paints a picture, he sees the picture in his mind before he paints it. He just doesn't get up there and think about, uh, you know, uh, the Empire State Building and pic- paint a picture of a bridge. He, he sees in his mind what he wants to paint. When a man sits down and composes a, 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 a song or a score or a piece of music, he hears it. He lives it. Many times it's been rolling around in his head for weeks or months, maybe years, before he finally pens it down. Well, it's the same way with preaching. Preaching is an art. It's a lost art, by the way. When you preach, you know what you're doing? You're painting a word picture with words. You're taking the words out of the Bible with the Holy Spirit of God working through you, and you're painting a picture you're painting a picture of what you're trying to uh, convey to them. And, of course, it's the same is with teaching the Bible or preaching the Bible that it is with, with either being a painter or being a music composer. You have to understand what you're seeing. You have to understand yourself what you're trying to teach. And I teach guys, you know, all the aspects. I, I think it's good that not only do you... Not only do you uh, 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 you know, listen to yourself, but you stand in front of a mirror and watch yourself. Because you don't want, any, in anything you do for God, you do not want to distract from what you're trying to paint the picture. And uh, you don't want anybody looking at you more than they're looking at what the picture is you're trying to paint. And that's why I'm interested, I'm, I'm excited, Bubba, to hear you preach tonight, because I found out when you didn't come to the thing last night, and I said, where's Bubba? We got free food. Bubba never misses free food. You know what your wife told me? She told me you were home working on your message, and when she walked out, she looked around the corner, and there was Bubba standing in front of a full-length mirror, practicing, weren't you, huh? going to have my eye on you tonight now. <laughs> you see, you have a distinct advantage over me or anybody else that preaches, because if you really bomb out, you just got to pick up your guitar and start singing, and they'll love you down there, see? <laughs> I can't do that. I only know two songs. One of them's in the sweet by and by, and the other one isn't. So I don't have that luxury. But anyway, preaching's an art form. I think in my life, in a lot of ways, I feel so fortunate to be where I'm at and to be where I've come from. I came out of a church in Canton, Ohio called the Canton Baptist Temple. Dr. Harold Henniger was the pastor there, and he was one of J. Frank Norris's old boys. And uh, one of the things that I sat under that church and a pastor there, Mel Shabaka, most of you know him, I sat for almost six years under that man's ministry, letting him teach me everything that he knew. I was smart enough to know that I didn't know anything. And I was also smart enough to know that he knew a lot more than I did. So I simply submitted myself, and it was like I look back on it all the time, and I look back on what dimension he gave me in my life, but I also remember this. I never had much contact with Harold Henniger, the pastor there. Uh, he did his thing, and I did mine. I was just a young, teen, young guy, you know, just start, turned 19 or 20. And, uh, you know, he was busy doing his thing. And we conversed and talked, and uh, we got along and everything. But we never were pals like I was with Sabaka. But I'll tell you one thing that Harold Henniger did. He had the foresight and the understanding to bring in on Sunday night some of the greatest preachers that you would ever hear in your life. 
the last of what I call the old Philadelphian age preachers. Men who were the last of a dying breed. You talk about a dying art in preaching. These men were the last men who understood what it really meant to be able to preach the Word of God and do it in such a way that it was unbelievable. I remember hearing guys like, you don't even know most of these guys, probably never heard of them. I remember hearing Fred Brown teach the book of Romans. I mean it absolutely, his command of the book of Romans and his ability to, to really paint the pictures. And then you had your evangelistic type preachers who could just take the paint off the wall like B.R. Lakin who was an old southern guy and who could just let you have it and his voice sounded like a big clack of thunder when he hit his peak and just he would just devastate the crowd. I remember hearing Howard Sears and Victor Sears. I remember Alex Dunlap who was a converted Roman Catholic priest who went around and his main deal was winning Catholics to Christ. An incredible guy. Absolutely incredible. Died of a cancer back in the, in the early 80s. I remember Harold Scheitler, Roy Thompson from the Cleveland Baptist Church. Guys like Lester Roloff, Tom Malone from Detroit, Michigan, Dallas Billington from Akron, Ohio, uh, masters at preaching. And I remember watching those guys. I remember sitting there listening to the way that they opened their sermons, listened to how that they would, they would contact with the crowd. I was, I was lucky because I played the trumpet and I sat in the brass ensemble, so I was on the platform behind the guy and I could see the crowd. I watched these guys would preach for an hour and 15 minutes and you'd look down and you're watching and you'd say, wow, it seems like it's been five minutes ago when he started. They had the ability to keep a crowd. They had the ability that when he moved, every eye was on him. They had the ability to, to, to move the crowd at will. And understanding through the pictures that they were painting with the words from the Bible that absolutely just captivated the crowd like an artist painting some great masterpiece. Or like sitting there in a symphony and listening to Beethoven or Schubert or Brahms and just sitting there transfixed on everything that you hear. That's what they did with words in preaching. It's an incredible time in my own life. And I learned a lot of things. I watched those young men. And very frankly, I think that that's the, that's the missing element today. I, would, I, would, I, I listened to those guys preach and their, their messages at the end would weigh about a thousand pounds. There was so much in them. If you wanted to take the, uh, the cassette, we didn't have CDs back then. I grew up in a day of 8-tracks. <laughs> you guys don't even know what 8-tracks, you're laughing, don't even know what 8-tracks are, do they? They don't know, Roy, do we? We know the Beach Boys down by the Bunny Farm, don't we, buddy, huh? You betcha. Yeah, Roy met Don at Woodstock back there 40 years ago. <laughs> and and, and I, I'd listen to those guys, and I'd take them home, and I would, it would just take me a week to get through one-hour sermon. Why? Because they're loaded. That's what's missing today. That's why when you go to most churches, you need to have a big screen up front there, and you need to have smoke coming out from under the seats, and you need to have 100,000 dancing girls, and you need to have all of the things, you know. You know why? You know why you got to entertain them? Because the pastor has nothing to say when he gets up there. Amen. He has nothing. His messages you could carry out in your shirt pocket. <laughs> There's no depth to them. There's no firmness to them. There's no soundness to them. And you listen to them and you say, well, you know what, I, I, you get discouraged. I know, you, I know God's people do. Maybe not you, but I, I hope you don't. But I, but, but, but I know what it's like. I, I saw that and I studied those great preachers. And I'll tell you, you want to become a good preacher for God, you want to be used of God, then study the men that God used in their way that they did what they did. 
as you learn the Bible. It's what balances it out. I told you last week the church teaches, a church should teach both aspects. You ought to get the book. You ought to learn the truth. You ought to have somebody giving you the Bible exactly the way God wants you to have it. But at the same time, you need a structure of accountability where you can let grace work what you learn and put yourself in a man's ministry where you can, where you can begin to grow. I, I've told you this before. The, the, the people in this church that are really involved in the ministry aspect uh, versus maybe somebody that just came and is just still not making any effort at all to, to learn the Bible, the difference between them is unbelievable because they're actually in the process. The process actually works in their lives. And they allow God to build the grace as they get the truth. And that's an incredible thing. And that's why it's so important to do things like the mission. It's why it's so important to do things like the Bible basics class. That's why it's so important to work one-on-one with somebody in discipleship. In just a short time, we'll have uh, the lessons done for the Bible basics classes. And we'll start another whole thing of some of you young men and young ladies teaching other people the Bible, basically what I taught you. The whole concept of it. The whole concept of it. And, uh, you know, in the personal dealing with people. When people come in with marital problems or people come in with issues in their own lives, I give them to you people now. And you take them. And that's how you learn grace. Nothing will teach you grace better than two things that I know. One is having kids, and the other one is working with people in a church. I understand what Mark Twain said when he said, the more I'm around people, the better I like dogs. I understand that. I understand that. Except in a minister, we have to work with people. And you see, this is, this is, this is the importance of getting a zeal, but according to knowledge. And I told you also that we see this in the, in the books that Paul writes. And I told you how that Paul writes in his writings in two formats. The first format is he writes to churches. And if you study Paul's writings, you'll see that he writes to seven churches. And in those writings to those seven churches, he gives them church doctrine that the church needs to understand. He teaches the church how they are to operate, how they are to deal with situations, I don't know of any counseling scenario you'll ever find yourself in that isn't covered in one of the letters written to the church. You want to learn how to deal with marital issues? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You want to deal... I don't, I've never found an issue that wasn't covered somewhere in one of Paul's writings. And then he writes the second format, and that will be three books that he writes to New Testament individual Christians. And that will be Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those three men are pastors. They're men who, just like some of you, And some of you ladies, not that you're a pastor, but you come up in the same system. You learn the Bible. You learn the process. You learn the aspect of ministry. And then you become valuable. I think one of the great things that, and there's probably more information given on Timothy than the other two guys. But Timothy's your model. He's your model pastor in the Bible. And when you look at Timothy's life early on, you see all of the things that he had in his life, which were so crucial to him getting to the point. And I see many of you like I see Timothy. Many of you come out of the same situation that Timothy did. And I know a lot of times maybe your home life is not what it should be. And maybe your mom and dad uh, are not what you would like them to be. Maybe they're not even saved. Maybe they are, but they're just really weird people or whatever. And they give you all kinds of problems. Let me tell you something. Nobody probably had weirder parents than Timothy. Because it looks like his mom was saved and his dad wasn't. 
And it's an incredible story to begin to see how God took this young man and brought him up through it no matter what. My point is this. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are at home. It doesn't matter what your situation is in life. All that really matters is, are you willing to be taught the Bible and to open up yourself to let God have you? That's all it takes. God will take the worst scenario you're in and make it the best example in your life when God gets the glory out of it. Now, I want to go through these three books, and this is basically where we stopped last week. And I'm very basically, and just to show you a, a concept here, because in all of these three books, in all of these three men's lives, you find exactly where I'm going. And I'm going here. Before we're done this morning, I'm going to give you five absolute concepts that you have to have in your life that Paul taught to Timothy, Philemon, and Titus. And there are five concepts that if you're ever going to get to the place as a young man or a young lady, where you're ever going to have everything that God wants you to have as far as the balance between grace and truth, and really learn the Bible, but then learn how to use the Bible, you're going to have to get these things down. Five absolute concepts that you have to have to balance your life as to grace and truth and having a zeal, but having it according to knowledge. Now, let's just very briefly, let's look at, at 1 Timothy. Now, when Paul writes to Timothy, and it's very obvious that all three of these boys were won to Christ by Paul. Certainly, if they weren't won to Christ by Paul, like many of you, God put them in Paul's life like many of you, God put you in my life. And Paul adopts them as his own sons spiritually speaking. And he says very openly that these are, my, these are my sons in the Lord. He makes no bones about it, much like I look at most of you, male and female. But you're going to find that when he writes the young Timothy in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy takes on a shape that you have to see. And in time, if you're ever going to pastor you're going to ha- or get to the point of real leadership, you have to grasp these points. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with him this morning, but he gives Timothy 12 charges, 12 concepts, 12 things that he gives to him that he holds him accountable to learn. And of course, this, if you want to look at it this way, your whole book of 1 Timothy is broken down around these 12 things. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20, he talks to young Timothy about the purpose of the Old Testament law. He talks to him about the true nature of the gospel. And then he talks about those people that, who would pervert it. And he talks to Timothy about things that he's going to have to deal with. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, he talks about how important it is to teach the church the concept of prayer. And basically, if you go through there, and we don't have time to get through this, he shows Timothy that there's four types of prayer that you need to know and understand. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, he shows the true uh, uh, position. Of, of women, God's women in the church, and what their true ministry is. Well, we get the idea today that because a woman cannot pastor, that that's some kind of discrimination, uh, but, uh, and that's not true. A woman's position in the church is unlike any man's position could ever be. And though a woman may not be allowed to pastor under the New Testament guidelines, she certainly has a place in the church that is so relevant, that is absolutely invaluable, just like she does in a marriage. You got guys who grow up and, you know, and they get married and they think that, you know, the old thing, and wife being submissive to me, so that means you got to shut your mouth and can't ever say anything. Let me tell you something. God gave her to you for a reason. And that reason is, is because she looks at things from a value perspective that we don't have as men. And you can either do one of two things. You can either listen to her or 
hear about it all the rest of your life. No. <laughs> you, either, you either hear what she says and listen and value it, or you're going to make some mistakes in life. And boy, how true, how true that is. And then he talks about the fact that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, uh, he talks about the qualifications of a bishop, and that'd be a pastor. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, he shows the qualification of deacons. And those are the two offices you have in the local church. You have the office of a pastor, which is called a bishop in the Bible, and you have the pastor office of a deacon, those two offices. And that makes up your leadership role accountability, see? Then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, you have the true nature of the church and what it should stand for. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, you have the warning against false teachers and any heresy that will, will obviously begin to try to creep into your church. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, a great passage here. He talks about how that you and I should attend to our personal holiness and keep developing spiritually. Boy, that's a great one. That's what gets most of God's people right there. They don't keep developing spiritually. And when you don't look at your Christian life as a constant, where you utterly, and I'm going to show you how to do that in just a little bit, but you've always got to look at your own personal relationship with God and realize they keep that, you have to keep developing spiritually. In fact, there's a little three-point outline in here that I think is a great message to preach if you're ever preaching someplace. You know, I think it's a great little outline. He says, till I come, uh, give attendance. And he says three things. Attendance to reading, attendance to exhortation, and attendance to doctrine. You know how that translates that on a little three-point outline? Until he comes back, you ought to be in attendance to reading the Word of God, pre reading, preaching the Word of God, exhortation, and knowing the Word of God, doctrine. And it's a great little outline. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, he talks about how to care for the widows and how the church should operate under that scenario. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, he talks about how to deal with the elders and what important part they play into the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, he talks about teaching the correct relationship between a servant and a master. Great parallels in there. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 21, he talks about how to deal with the riches of this world. In particular, how not to be bought or be bullied by people with money that come into your church. These are great concepts. And it's these 12 charges that basically are the ministry when you go in and develop them fully. And it's these 12 concepts that really helps you get to the point where you not only have truth, but these things have to have the grace to be able to deal with these situations as you come through. Then we have 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a book of reflection. Remember, it's the last thing that Paul writes before he gets killed. I always thought it was absolutely incredible, to me anyhow, that the last thing that he's worried about before he dies is the young men that he trained to, to, to fulfill himself once he's gone. Paul understood a great concept. It's a concept that every pastor needs to understand. The first day you take a church ought to be the first day you start to look and train your replacement. And that's what Paul did. And uh, it's a great encouragement to me to know that before he goes home to be with the Lord, his thoughts are toward the young men and probably the young ladies that he invested his life in. So the theme of 2 Timothy is, is to remember. And it's Paul's last book. And he says in chapter 1 that Timothy's to remember the gifts and the training. He says in chapter 2 that he's going he's gonna to have to remember to hold to sound uh, words. 
He tells him in chapter 3 that he's to remember that he's living in perilous times and there's perilous people. And then in chapter 4, he says, remember always to preach the word, in season, out of season. Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy is a great book, and it forms not only the truth, but also the grace then to be able to use that truth. Then we come to the book of Titus. Titus lays out the second greatest aspect of ministry, leadership, being a pastor, and that is the aspect of stewardship. You know why most churches are not good churches? It's because they don't have good pastors. Now, I'm not saying the guys aren't nice guys. I'm not saying they're out there in the world drinking and running around. I'm just saying they don't understand that as a pastor, you have some things you have to be a steward over as far as your church is concerned. And a steward, the Bible says, is somebody that needs to be found faithful. I would dare to say if you take the average pastor and in your Bible, in your Bible, there are seven things that a, a, a Christian, not just a pastor now, there are seven things that you and I as a Christian need to be stewards over. And if you would ask the average Christian, they wouldn't know. If you ask the average pastor, he wouldn't know. And then we wonder why our Christian lives are in such upheaval and why churches don't get the job done today. It's because that we're not faithful stewards. And he lays seven things out uh, that uh, a pastor has to be steward of. Paul doesn't in particular here, but it, through the book he does in, uh, uh, in Titus talking about being a steward. But all the way through the Bible, you'll find these seven things. The first thing that a pastor or uh, any Christian needs to be a steward of is his own home. And uh, you know what? People never see the connection between the ministry and your home life. If you have children living under your roof, <coughs> if you have children living under your roof, <coughs> you have a stewardship toward those children. <coughs> and I don't care if they're your direct biological children. I don't care if they're, you're, you're, you've been remarried and you've got somebody else's kids you've got to raise. That doesn't negate your ability or your responsibility to be a steward. We have to be stewards of our home. This is why 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, How can a man take care? If a man does not take care of his own house, how shall we take care of the church of God? And of course, the answer is he won't. He won't. Because the, the, the balance is, the, the parallels are, are they're too, you can't pastor a church if you can't pastor your family. And if you have children living under your house, under your roof, in your house, in your home, then you have a responsibility to be a steward to them. And of course, uh, you know, last week I talked to you about the disastrous, uh, we talked about men that I have known over the years that have been unteachable, men who have been lifted up in pride. Men who come into a church for a short time and they get a little bit of knowledge and then they think they know more than everybody else and then they're off, you know, to go start a church, build a church, you know, unstop deaf ears, red dead people and give sight back to the blind, you know, and off they go. And of course, their life is always winds up in a disaster. You know why? Because their home life is a disaster. You got guys who get up and talk about the Bible and talk about and can minister to everybody else, but their own kids, their own kids, their own wife, gets no ministering from them. I know pastors that they were up pastoring churches and their kids have run away because of the abuse that goes on in the family. But the pastor always presents it here. But it's got to be a double line. You've got to be able to be a steward of your own home. Mel had a quite affectionate name for, for unteachable people. And uh, I, 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 he always had some kind of acronym for nothing, for something, and, which usually meant nothing, but it was always interesting. And he, he looked at these guys who are, we call them wannabes, you know. They don't have the ability to be taught. They are lifted up with pride. They are lifted up with all of the things that uh, destroy them in time. 
but, uh, but yet they want to pretend that they're so spiritual. He used to call them Nimrods. And he got it out of the Bible in Genesis. I asked him one time, I said, where did you come up with that word Nimrod? And he says, well, it's in Genesis chapter 10 down there where Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he said, Nimrod is the guy in the Bible who gives the impression when you read it that he's really doing something for God. But inside and behind the scenes, he's not. And in fact, you know the name Nimrod means rebellion? And he says, so I just took that a little affectionate term for all the guys that I've had to deal with in ministry that, that uh, pretend they want to do something for the Lord, but they always are trying to tear down the things of God. And so they're Nimrod. And I asked him, well, why Nimrod? And he said, he said it's an acronym. Now, I don't know what an acronym is, but, but I think it's a suburb of Akron. But anyway, it, and he said, well, it's in Nimrod. N-I-M-R-O-D. N stands for no. I stands for integrity. M stands for maturity. R stands for relationship. O stands for openness and honesty. And D stands for discernment. So they, a Nimrod is a guy who has no N, integrity I, maturity M, relationship R, openness and honesty O, and no discernment D. They're Nimrods. And I said, I got it. So I, I've adopted that affectionate term myself. The second thing we need to be stewards of is our perspective of the second coming of Christ. You'll find this in Luke chapter 12, verse 42. You'll find the, the concept of the home in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2 at Abraham. Now that's very important because you understanding where you were at on our chart up there from Thursday nights and all of our Bible basic classes, you as a child of God especially need to know where you're at, where you stand in relationship to Christ's coming. And of course, that's why we need to be stewards of the second coming of Christ. The third thing in Luke chapter 16 is being stewards of our time and the things that God has given us. The fourth thing is to be stewards of is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and these will be the mysteries of God. And you're going to find that the mysteries of God, and there's seven to the church and there's twelve to the nation of Israel. And you will find out that the seven to the church and the twelve to Israel are the keys to understanding your Bible. But we're to be stewards of them. Since we started our church six years ago, I looked it up the other day, I know two times at least, maybe three, I preached on the mysteries of God and I counted something through the Bible study things that we have listed, something like 14 other times I, I, I made reference to it or dealt something in it. Why? Because my job as a pastor is to be a steward of those mysteries. And you're supposed to know those. And if you don't know them, it's because I haven't taught them to you. Then the fifth one, we're to be, we're, and I love this one, we're, we're, to be, we're to be stewards of the grace of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Now, that's a great one. All these guys run around saying, well, you don't have any grace. You don't have any grace. You got truth, but you don't have grace. You need to have grace. You need to have grace. Pit them on the spot and ask them to define for you what is the manifold. You know what manifold means, don't you? If you don't, open up your hood and look on your car. Manifold. Grace of God. You're to be a steward of that. Well, they wouldn't even know where the verse is at, let alone be able to explain it to you. But you see, oh, they got grace. They got grace. Well, be careful you don't spell grace and stupidity with the same words. Manifold grace of God. Then Titus chapter 1, verse 7, steward of blameliness. Now, that's always a good one. How does a pastor be blameless when he gets blamed for everything? Kind of like being married. How do you be blameless with your wife when she blames you for everything? Well, there's a way. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but there is a way for you to be a pastor or be a leader. And even though you do things, you have to, you'll never make a decision as a leader. I never have. 
You'll never make a decision. You'll never do anything as a leader that some people are not going to like what you do. I have never been able to find a way to make a decision everybody is happy with, other than the one time that I gave everybody that came to church $1,000. And then they weren't happy when the checks bounced. But my intentions were there, see? You're going to have to realize that there is a way to stay blameless even though you get blamed for everything. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but you ought to be a steward of that. And then the last thing is stewardship of Israel. That's where we're at right now, isn't it? Matthew chapter 20, verse 8. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. That's what Paul's teaching the church in his book. He's teaching you and me how to be a steward of the nation of Israel, understanding who they are in the light of God's people. Then Philemon. Philemon is a great book that shows the attitude of service versus ministry. The story of a runaway slave. And you know, most people think that service for the Lord and ministry for the Lord are the same, but they're not. Ministry is what you do. Service is the attitude by which you do it. And this is a great book to show you the attitude of a servant that we need to have. And, of course, it brings us down to, uh, you know, having a teachable spirit, accountable spirit, and a disciplined spirit. Now, within all these books, and they're called the pastoral epistles, you have, you have it all. You have everything that you need. But in particular, here's where we're going now. You have five great concepts that you have to have um, that produce the grace and the truth and the zeal to have the right knowledge how to use it. And it's all based on these five things, and as you grow through them, God gives you the truth, but He gives you the grace, and you'll wind up having a zeal, but a zeal according to knowledge. And it's one of the most tremendous things. I remember being taught this when I was just a very young Christian, and it stayed with me all of these years. In fact, it stayed with me so much that I can actually, honestly, before God say this, everything that I do, You're all here at different levels. You're all here at different levels, spiritually. But whatever I do, no matter what level you're on, I'm always looking to build these five things into your life to get you to the point where you need to be. Maybe you won't accept them. Maybe you won't do anything with them. But I am consciously, by design, giving you these five concepts and building them into your life if you'll let me. Now, before we get into this, I've got to kind of set the stage here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians is a great book because in that book, Paul defines what the church really is. And before we get into the five things here, and we're going to lay this thing for you down, I've got to show you how this thing works because it's very important. And I want you to be able to see this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. And this is really where he's defining what the church does and what the church is right here for you. Here's what he says. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children, tossed through and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which be the head, even Christ. Now, we, this is a great verse. I don't know of another verse in the Bible that in one short little paragraph of verses basically lays out not only my job, the job of the church, but also the process by which you need to work through in your life. This is a great passage. And uh, this illustrates the concept of how God uses the church in your life. 
You know, we're living in a day and age where most people don't want to go to church. And I got to tell you the truth, I can't really blame most people because uh, churches are about as dead as can be. Um, but if you find a church that teaches you the Bible, that has its head screwed on and understands where it's at, your obligation is to grow and get everything that God has for you. Now we see this illustrated here. Now look at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You note the progress there coming through your Bible? Apostles, that'd be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Prophets, that'd be the early book of Acts. The evangelist, that'd be the middle of Acts. That'd be, that'd be uh, Philip in Acts chapter 7 and 8 and Paul uh, th through the rest of it. And then pastors and teachers. There's Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. You see that order? Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but look what it says. And he gave some, comma, apostles, and some, comma, prophets, punctuation, and some evangelists, punctuation, and some, comma, pastors and teachers. You know that there's no comma between pastors and teachers? You know why? Because every pastor ought to be a teacher. As a pastor or as a leader, you and I will be able to take the paint off the wall when the wall needs painting, but you ought to be able to teach. You know what that is? That's grace and truth. You see, preaching is great because that lays out truth. If I got up here and tore all your hide off today, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be, the, that'd be the truth. If I said you're rotten, you're filthy, and you're vile, and we all need to be in hell, that's the truth. But you got to have grace to add to that. See? And that's what you got. It's an incredible passage. Now look at verse 12. Here's the job of the church. Here's my job. Here's what I'm supposed to do in your life, if you'll let me. One, perfect the saints. You know what that is? That's the process by which you get the things out of your life that you need to get out so God can do something with you. Second aspect, work of the ministry. You know what that is? Getting you to buy into what I'm doing here, link up with me side by side, help me in the ministry. I mean, I can only work with so many people. I can only deal with so many scenarios. I got to have people that can help me do that. But I can't put you into the work of ministry till you perfect yourself to the point where God can use you. See how it works? It's a process. Perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the ultimate goal for you, from, for me. My ultimate goal for you is to perfect you for the work of the ministry that when you get to the point in your life that you're edifying the body of Christ. What does that mean? That means you learn to solve problems instead of cause problems. It means you look to see a situation that somebody's in that you're working with and you help grow them. You help heal them. You help edify them. You help put into their life the concepts that they need to have that the body of Christ keeps going forward. You ever find anybody in any church, in any place, when are you singing again? We, we need to do a duet sometime, me and you. We can do, I, you know, I'll cover your weak areas, you know. I've got a good, anyway. Everybody needs to understand, you need to come to the place in your life where you put these things in your life. I don't care if it's any church, any pastor, any ministry. You find somebody in a church that goes around Looking to cause problems, you got somebody that's not following what the thing. The job of the people in the church is to solve problems, not cause. Now, given sometimes you get handed a problem you can't solve. But most of the problems in churches are problems because he won, the pastor didn't do what he needed to do, or somebody else that was in leadership wasn't following the protocol of understanding what the ministry is. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak, and not to please himself, Romans 15, 1. So that's the process I want in your life, you see. Now, how long do we do that? Look at verse 13. 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's that talking about? That's talking about the day the Lord comes back in a rapture, we get our glorified body. We now become the full measure of Christ, the stature of Christ. We're now what He is. All the problems we got are gone. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth, from this point on, be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. You see that thing? Be no more children. Tossed to and fro. You see that little word there, to and fro? Run that back to Job chapter 1 when God asked the devil what he was doing and he said going to and fro on the earth. That's what it's talking about. Notice wind of doctrine. Remember when Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God came, what did it sound like? Wind. You know what you got? You got somebody teaching, somebody coming into a church, teaching false doctrine, and people are too stupid to figure out what's right and what's wrong, so they get caught up with these guys right here. Here's your nimrods, slight of men, cunning craftiness, waiting to deceive. There's your nimrods of life. And of course, that's exactly what you've got. God wants you to me. Look at this. Look at this. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love. There it is. Grace and truth. See? Speaking the truth, but in love. There's God's grace. Grow up into, not unto, grow up into Him. Not unto Him, but grow up in your life. That will be a process that every day you are transforming your old self into a new person and you're growing up to be Him. Not like Him, not kind of like Him. Growing up every day into Him. That's a process. That process comes from perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. The process in the church that God has put in place. It's a progression. I've always been amazed by people who can do woodworking. I've seen some, I know Marcy's dad does great woodworking, doesn't he? Incredible. I've seen guys that can take a piece of wood and make a masterpiece out of it. When I was nine years old, I tried to make me a slingshot. First try, I pulled that sucker back, and one thing broke, hit me in the eye, and killed me. I never gave that was the end of my woodworking skill. I'm not very good at it. When I was in high school, I went took wood shop. I got the Billy Butcher Award. We all had a project. We made lamps. You know how things goes in high school. We had to make lamps, and for your mother. And I made a lamp for my mother to this day. My mother won't even keep that lamp in the house. It, it, it was terrible. I, I was never good at woodworking. I was never good at metal. I took metal shop. I wanted to build a tank. Never got it done. I couldn't, couldn't fit it all together. It just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. But I, I admire people that work with wood. Uh, wood comes from trees. You know, there's different types of wood that come from different types of trees. You know that one of the greatest studies in the Bible you ever take is the study of trees in the Bible. Judges 9, Ezekiel 31. You realize in the Garden of Eden there were seven trees back there that you're told about in Ezekiel 31 and Judges 9? Seven trees, and they all mean something. And you know, you ever notice that people in the Bible are likened to trees? Why, when God wanted to make an ark, that ark's a type of Christ. When God wanted to make an ark, God made it out of gopher wood. And uh, gopher wood, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if they have gopher wood today, but gopher wood back then was a very enduring wood very solid to the core. 
very sound wood, very a, a dark wood. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the ark and the flood took place 2400 B.C. We're now 2,000 years. That's almost 4,400 years later. You realize that from 19, early 1900 right up to the last 30, 40 years till they blocked it off, they were finding the ark up there in Mount Arat. I remember the first time they saw the ark up there and somebody got a picture of it. All the Christians went crazy. Oh, we found the ark. We found the ark. Like, what, you didn't think it was there? Isn't God's people weird how you got to find something before they believe it's real? I see these little t-shirts with a little song one time. It was a cute little thing, you know. It says, how to go? It says, um, God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. You know, God said it. And I believe it. That settles it for me. You know what? God said it. That settles it. Doesn't make any difference if you believe it or not. The fact that he said it is all that matters. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Somebody says, well, uh, I guess God showed me why he did this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get saved. Then you're probably going to die and go to hell because God doesn't owe you anything. You think God's going to run around heaven and say, oh, quick, we got to get him the answer so he doesn't die and go to hell. He doesn't owe you an answer. He told you what to do to get into position to get the answer. You don't want to do that first? You're on your own, pal. Roll the dice. I'm not sure what that had to do with the sermon this morning, but I had to get that out of my system. <laughs> Oh, that's right. There you go. Gopher wood. That's right. Gopher wood. That's a type of Christ. It's very sound. It's very enduring. You know, when you want to study Christ in the Bible, you want to study oak trees. Oaks are very strong. They're very sound wood, very solid to the core. You want to study the crucifixion and find out what was going on? I'll give you a little key word. Study the oaks of Bashan. Oaks of Bashan. You won't find anything on it, but try it. It's great study. So when you want to study about Christ, you'll study gopher wood. You want to study about the crucifixion, you study the oak. You want to study God's people, it's, it's palm trees. Palm trees. Palm trees are all in the Bible. They're always a picture of, of, of God's people. You find it in Psalms chapter 92, verse 12. Wood in the Bible is very important. And, 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 and palm trees, like oak trees, like gopher wood, are very sound wood, enduring, very tough, very stable for building long term. In fact, when you look at a Psalms, uh, the palm tree in Psalms 92, and you take the parallels to a Christian when you see what a, a palm tree does, you have to do a little study on it, you'll find they're incredible. Palm trees are what Christians ought to be. You know, palm trees always put their roots in rocks. You know, palm trees are what we call evergreen. They never have a downtime of putting fruit out in their life. You know, palm trees have a long life. You know, palm trees, like any other tree, have the ability to repel bugs. And remember, wherever you got light, you'll have bugs. You know that palm trees are sound to the core. You know, they figured up one time that a, a palm tree and, and, and over there in the Middle East, it has over 360 uses that it can be used for. It can be used for rope. It can be used for building material. 360 things that a palm tree can be used for. In other words, almost any circumstance you find yourself in, if you can find a palm tree, you can, you can do what you got to do. Real palm trees, the way they're talked about in the Bible, are scarce anymore. You don't find many of them, just like real Christians are scarce anymore. And yet palm trees, when you look at them, they grow tall. But they also grow straight. You see, it doesn't do you any good as a Christian to grow tall. 
if you don't grow straight. See how that thing works? Wouldn't the Bible is a great study? Because a Christian needs to be sound to the core. Now I want to talk to you about five things that as a Christian should make you strong and make you sound to the core that you get to the point where you have everything that you need to do whatever God job God's called you to do. And we're going to look at these things and the things that Paul writes to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now the first place we want to go is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And he says in verses 2, 3, and 4, here's what he tells Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure, here it comes, sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. Now turn over to Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says this, Holding fast the faithful word as hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially them of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole, there's your nimrods, uh, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. You see, the importance of sound doctrine is the difference between knowing a few things about the Bible and knowing the Bible. I don't want you just to know some things about the Bible. My goal is for you to know the Bible. And to know the Bible, you have to have sound doctrine. Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, that there's two men. One built a, built a house. One built it on the sand. And the other one built it on a rock. The one that built it on the sand, when the rains came and the winds came and everything came, washed the house away. But the other guy who built it on a rock, when the storms came and the wind came, every wind of doctrine... He held fast. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because he had sound doctrine. He had sound doctrine. Now this is called a word study in the Bible. Taking the word sound and running it through Paul's books to the young men that he, that he put in. Even though we didn't write it into Philemon, you know that Philemon got it in the process. Five things that make you and me a sound Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, and I love this passage, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for love. Possible, I'll get that wrong. Possible for, for kumbaya meetings. I'm sorry, I got that. Possible and profitable for, for, for having a good time and everybody getting along and holding hands. No, 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 I read it wrong yet. No, it's profitable for doctrine, the first thing it's profitable for. You know what doctrine is? Doctrine is what the Bible teaches, doctrine is what's right. And then the next thing he says is. Profitable for doctrine, that's the first thing your Bible's profitable for. The second thing is reproof. You know what proof is? Reproof is what's wrong. The Bible not only shows you what's right, but then the Bible shows you what's wrong. What is the next thing it says? Correction. The Bible not only shows you what's right, not only shows you what's wrong, it shows you how to fix what's wrong. What's the next one? Instruction in righteousness. The Bible not only shows you what's right, not only shows you what's wrong, not only shows you how to fix it, but then it shows you how to keep it fixed. You know where it starts? Doctrine. 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 Knowing doctrine is the foundation on which you build your Christian life. The death of Bible doctrine in America started as a turn. I don't 
mean to bore you with this, but if you want to go back to the turn of the century and trace this thing back and find out where it all went off the track, you can go right back to the last part of the uh, 18th century, uh, or the 19th century, and right into the beginning of the 20th century with a neo-evangelical movement, the neo-orthodox movement, and the charismatic movement. All three of them had one goal, and that is to take the Bible away from you and take doctrine away from you, and now we live in a Christian day where everybody wants to get along. Everybody wants to get along today. We don't want any differences between us. Hey, see, my ten, you cannot have doctrine and not have differences. If you know what the Bible says and somebody else is teaching it wrong and the Bible is the number one thing in your life, you know what a mistake we've made today? And this is true in most churches. We think the number one thing, job for a Christian, the number one thing that God cares about is getting people saved. We think that. We think that because you're told that. Now, I'm all for getting people saved. I, I am. I, I, I would anybody to Christ anytime, anyplace, anywhere. I'm all for getting people to saved. But I also know that once you make the top priority of God being salvation, that you then are going to be into trouble. Because you're going to find circumstances that you deal with people on that you're going to, what you're going to do if you make the number one thing in your life and you make the number one thing that God cares about is people getting saved, then you're going to do whatever you've got to do to get people saved. You adopt the mindset that the end justifies the means. May I suggest to you, may I suggest to you that God's number one concept that He cares about and the thing that He follows and the number one thing in God's heart is not getting people saved. The number one thing in God's heart is truth. That's number one. Because if you don't have truth, doctrine, you got nothing. When did you ever see Jesus shortcutting the truth to get somebody saved? When did you ever see in any way, shape, or form Paul ever circumvent the doctrine to get somebody saved? The original coining of the phrase, my way or the highway, started with Jesus. And he simply says, you know what, you can come to him. A rich young ruler came one time, and he had great riches. And he said, Master, what good thing must I do to be saved? And you know what, when God was done with him, he walked away very sorrowful. You didn't see Jesus running after him and said, well, okay, let's just do this then. It's truth or it's nothing. It's either right or it's wrong. And it says the Bible's profitable for doctrine. And what we got in the world today is a whole bunch of people who want to get along. We want to all believe the same thing. We want to, I hate this term, we want to agree to disagree. What does that mean? <laughs> the only time I would agree to disagree if you were a lot bigger than I was and I needed to get out of there. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine will always separate you and make it impossible for you to get along. It always will. And you know what? You know what sound doctrine produces? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You know what the sound doctrine produces in your life? It produces a sound mind. There's a great question asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Who hath known the mind of the, mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? You know what he's asking there? How do you know what God wants you to do? 
How do you know what God's mind is that He can instruct you of what you want to do? Then He tells you. He tells you in the beginning of that verse. He tells you in that verse, we have the mind of Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. When God wrote you the Bible and gave you the Bible, He gave you His mind and His opinion and His evaluation on every issue in life. You know what your job is? When you grow up unto Him, when you become more like Him, when you grow up into Him, you know what your job is? Your job is to see things from His standpoint, not your own. You see situations, events, the world, people, problems in the light of the Bible reality. The job of every Christian, God's will is based on how you think. And the process of growth in your life is changing the thought patterns of your life to start thinking like He thinks. But unfortunately, verse 7, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That's where most God's people live. They live in fear all the time. Some of you are afraid to death that somebody that's your friend will say something bad about you if you take a stand for God. Some of you are scared to death that your friends at work, if you show up with a Bible or you bowed your head to pray over your measly lunch, would laugh at you. Some of you are scared to death that if you took a stand and had to do something for God, that your family might turn against you, that your friends might turn against you, that when they find out you're going to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, they, they would ridicule you and call you all kinds of names and make all kinds of accusations against you, me, this church, and everybody else. And you're scared to death to put yourself in that scenario. I don't know what to tell you. Get out of my foxhole. Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love, that you and I may grow up into Him. That's what He wants. And I'll tell you what, my friend, the battle today that you fate, I know it's about your flesh. I know it's about the things that are around you, but you know what the real battle is today? The real battle is for your mind. Because if the devil gets your mind, he'll have everything. The battle is letting God have your mind or the world have your mind. It's that simple. And whichever one you give your mind to is the one that's going to run you. All right, when you get a sound doctrine, that produces a sound mind. You know what the sound mind produces? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That produces sound words. You see, words are the key to the Bible. Words are the key to the Bible. And it says in verse 13 that you're to hold fast the form of sound words. You know what words do? They form things that we say. I talked to about preaching a little while ago and talked about how that was an art. And you basically paint a picture with words. Yes, you do. But what you do with words is you form concepts. And those words have to be sound. Those words have to be based on the principles and the doctrine of the Word of God. You have to use the words that will paint the right pictures. And you're going to find that there's tremendous power of the words of the Bible. That little book that I gave our visitors today called uh, How to Study the Bible, it's got a whole section on there on words in the Bible that unlock what the Bible means and how it lays out the Word of God, the whole concept, because words are the key. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He didn't say, not, he didn't say, he, he didn't say they are the message or the fundamentals or the ideas or the opinions or the original. He said they are the words that I speak unto you. The importance of sound words. John chapter 18, verse 5. One time some guys came to Jesus and he just spoke the words and the power of the word knocked him back on the ground. 
Psalms 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, and it was done, and he commanded, and he stood still. It's the words. You form whole concepts with words. I really believe with all of my heart, and we certainly don't have time to get into this today, but if you go back to the book of Job, back Job chapter 26, you'll find, as far as I'm concerned, the six questions God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. As far as I'm concerned, the six questions God's going to ask you and me and we stand for the judgment seat of Christ. You know what one of those questions is? To whom hast thou spoken words? Wouldn't it be a wild thing when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you stand before God and you're getting ready to lay it out and tell Him all what you did and you got it all, got your story down pat about that time coming in there, boy, rushing like a mushing, writing wind, every word you ever spoke in all the years that you lived. And all right here behind you are all the categories. And boy, when it comes down to the royals, man, I mean, you fill that up. And down to the chiefs, you fill it up. When it comes down to deer hunting or fishing, you fill it up. When it comes down to the things you like to do in life. But when it comes down to the word that you spoke to people about his son, it's empty. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Wouldn't it be a tragic thing that when you got to the judgment seat of Christ, if your words formulated more dope deals than it did people getting home to Christ, getting saved? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Wow. We don't think like that. You know why? Because we don't think like he thinks. That's why you got to get his mind. All right, we got sound doctrine, which produces sound mind, which produces sound words. Let's look at the fourth one, Titus chapter 2, verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now that's a great concept. You know what that verse says? You know what the importance of sound speech is? Sound speech is knowing what you're talking about when you're saying something. Sound speech is not only knowing what you believe, but why you believe it. You see, I don't care what people believe. I really don't. I don't care what people believe. But what I do want to know is, do you know why you believe what you believe? And that's the verse. The verse says right there that it's speech that cannot be condemned. When you know, when you have sound speech, nobody can condemn you. Oh, they will. They will. But in actuality, they can't. Because it doesn't matter. Truth always has a way of, and the facts always have a way of setting the thing straight. You know what? I learned this a long time ago. When nobody else tells... In any given situation about anybody's life or any circumstance or situation, when nobody else tells, you know who tells in time? Time tells. Time tells. Time lays it all out in time. And there's never a thing in the Bible that didn't get laid out someplace in time. And it always does. And sound speech cannot be condemned. And the reason why it cannot be condemned, because uh, uh, the ultimate test of who's right is the doctrine and the truth and what you teach that's based on the Bible. And that's why you'll find that when people want to uh, uh, say something about what you believe, William had a little guy here last week that William went to one of his Bible studies and, and, and the guy asked him how he liked it and, and William said, well, he said, I just, and, you know, this is, William said, make sure I get this straight. William said, well, I, I, yeah, coming here really made me appreciate my Bible study back home or something to that effect, right? And, of course, the guy got mad, didn't he? And then he kind of said all kinds of nasty things about us, didn't he? But you know what the guy won't do? What did I tell you, William? 
William called me on the phone and said, what do you think I ought to do? You know what my answer was? Well, if we got all kinds of nasty things we're doing and all kinds of bad things we're teaching wrong, it's just Thursday afternoon. Invite him to Thursday night. I'll give him the first hour to teach everybody in this church where I'm wrong. And I'm serious. Did he show up? No. Will he show up? No. Because those kind of guys will only attack you from behind. You know why they'll never attack you toe-to-toe? Because what you got is the truth. What you got is the truth. When people always go around behind your back and they never confront you face-to-face, let me tell you something. It's because of the fact that they, they, you have the truth. They can't defend themselves. And so, therefore, they're just going to take cheap shots at you from behind your back. But never are they going to go face-to-face and toe-to-toe. Why? Boy, I'll tell you what. If, if I said something to somebody and I said he's an idiot and his Bible study is wrong or he's teaching this and teaching that, and the guy called me on the phone and said, well, I heard you said this. Is that true? And I said, yeah, I said it. I said, I probably shouldn't have said it, but I said it because that's my value on it. He said, well, I'll tell you what. How about you coming over to my Bible study Wednesday night or Thursday night or Friday night, Wednesday night, and I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you 45 minutes to lay out where I'm wrong. I'd be there with bells on. <laughs> and I wouldn't be arrogant about it. I've learned grace. I, I'd be cool about it. I would. I really would. We had a guy, you guys don't even know this. I got a call Thursday morning. I got a couple of calls. Well, you know, I got, I got your call saying, you know, this guy didn't like us. And I got Larry's call saying I can't wait to be there. So it kind of balanced it out. Thank you, Larry. You made my life better that day. But I got another call. And I got a guy of mine. And he came here a couple of weeks ago. And he gave me this letter that this guy gave him uh, that he's a, the guy kind of doesn't believe. He got, oh, he got the typical questions, you know. Why does God let people die and go to hell? Why does God let a baby die? Why does God do this? These are questions that nobody can answer. And so that my buddy called me and he says, hey, he tried to set up a time where we could talk and it just didn't work. And my buddy said, well, would you care if he came to Bible study Thursday night and asked these questions? I said, absolutely not. Bring him. Bring him. You know what? If you got something that you're afraid to deal with in the open, face to face, then you better look at what you believe. Because sound doctrine, which pursues sound speech, a sound mind with sound speech, and then produces the sound words and the sound speech, and you know what you're talking about, what do you got to be afraid of? Really? And the bottom line is this. I'm not so arrogant in what I think is right that if somebody teaches me what's wrong and I see I'm wrong, I'll say in front of the whole Bible study, you know what, kids? I was wrong. I don't care. I don't care who's wrong. I don't care if I'm wrong. I just want the truth. And if you can show me that I need to speak in tongues, I live it up and live it up and live it up and live it up and live I haven't told anybody this yet, but I'm going to do some things on Thursday night Bible study this next year to develop you. Not only develop you in what you want to learn, but develop you in your personal restraint. I'm going to have a team of Jehovah Witnesses come in on a Thursday night and take an hour and teach you what's wrong with what we believe and why you should be a Jehovah Witness. Then I'm going to let you ask them questions. Then I'm going to have, next month I'm going to have Mormons come in. Then the next month or so I'm going to have uh, Church of Christ come in. You want to learn other religions? I'll bring them in. But you're going to learn the restraint. You ain't going to get up and, and, and shoot your mouth off like you're, you know, you're going to be very kind. You're going to be very, you know, very thoughtful. You're kind of like, you know, it'll be like uh, the beer summit without beer. You know, it'll be just a, but I want you to learn. But I want you to learn how to keep them accountable for what they believe by using grace. In time, there's things that we have to learn. Sound speech. 
sound speech. And the reason why these Nimrods will never come on face to face, they'll always be behind your back, is because they really know that they don't know what they believe. They really don't know what they believe. You threw them a Bible. I, I told God before, you know what? I've got guys that said to me over the years, you know. I mean, it's just the way it goes with it. And I don't care. I got nothing to prove. I'll tell you what. You want to call me out high noon, boy, I'll strap on my six-shooter and meet you in the front of the saloon. I don't care. I don't care. I don't, I don't know how to fix anything. I, don't, I told you this before. I don't know anything. I know I spent one thing in my life to do. I know the Bible. And that's not, I'm not being arrogant or prideful. I'm just telling you. I mean, some of you guys, I watch you play ball, and you come in, and when you hit the home run over the fence, which I could never do. I mean, I have to play with midgets to be able to get it over their head. <laughs> By the way, I preached at a convention. The greatest preaching I ever preached one time, I preached for a convention of midgets. I did. No, you're allowed. I did. I got a standing ovation. Didn't even know it. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Are you, you up there, boy, and I, I'd love. And, and you know what? And you guys, I, and I don't understand this. I don't. You guys can, you guys can, you know, I, I got a catcher up there, and the guy's batting right-handed. And so the catcher's telling me, holding the glove over here, see? And I'm thinking to myself, the ball's going to come over. He's trying to tell me, pitch it inside. Now, I'd love to know why that is. I'd love to know why some of you can come up and bat left-handed or right-handed. I can't even do it the way I do it. And you crack that ball, and it's gone. I crack that ball, and a guy out there right outside of second base just catches it. And I'm as good as you. I'm better looking than you. What do you know that I don't know? I don't know those things. I tell you. I just asked somebody the other day, how come with the baseball games, all the umpires are going to have to be named Al? And they say, well, how about a scoreboard? RBIs. Now, that's run batted in. To me, it's really big ice cream. That's where I think about it, see? I, I don't care. I don't know. I know one thing in my life. It's that book right there. And I know when you're right and I know when you're wrong. The bottom line is the nimrods of life in your life will never, never come to your face. They'll always shoot behind the back. You know why they'll always shoot behind the back? Because they know better to walk in this place and say, hey, let me show you what you're teaching wrong. Get your head handed to you in your hand. With love. <laughs> sound word produce sound speech. Which produces a sound faith. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 13. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Look at Titus chapter 2. Same book. Second chapter. Verses 1 and 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith in charity, in patience. You see, the older you get, this process, this process that you start in your life the day you get saved, this process of coming to church and letting keep me on Sunday morning, Thursday night, one-on-one, -on -one, Bible basic, institute, whatever we do, produce the sound doctrine in your life. <clears throat> we take that sound doctrine and then we produce a sound mind like Christ. As you go through the process of growing up into Him, that sound mind produces then sound words. And you begin to actually make, <laughs> make sense in what you're saying. Why? Why are you now starting to make sense? Because you're building through a sound mind. Sound words would lead to sound speech. And at that point, you know what you're talking about. Let me tell you something. I got some of you in this church right now that I'd put up with anybody in this city on knowing going toe-to-toe -to -toe on the Bible. And you've only been at it five or six years in, in, in some kind of intensity. 
But I would put you up with anybody. Because you follow the process of sound doctrine, a sound mind, getting sound words, sound speech. And now it produces for you a sound faith. You know, you know, a sound faith is the bottom line where you're at today. Dr. Ruckman teaches a little thing, which I'm sure you've heard many, many times. It's, I heard it in 19, 19, uh, uh, 1971, and I've never forgot it. In fact, we've got a little book back there, and it's simply the three words, faith, fact, and feeling. I've taught it to you many, many times. Faith, fact, and feelings. You see, <coughs> faith is a great thing, but faith without fact is a bad thing. You know what a charismatic is? And I'm not, I don't, I'm not fighting with charismatics today. If you're charismatic, I'm, 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 I'm very charismatic myself, so I understand. But, but the charismatic movement is based, on, is based on faith. They're saved. But then it's feeling. They have no fact. And here's how I operate in my life. And this is what I want for you. My faith is never built on my feelings. You know what? I got food poisoning a while back been a year or so ago. I've never been so sick in all my life. I threw up every 15 minutes. I couldn't get out of bed. And, I, and it's one of those things that you start to feel better, then you get up, and then you're going to throw up again. And I'll tell you what. If you'd have called me on the phone and say, Bob, do you feel saved today? I'd say no. <laughs> because I just, I, just, I just puked up my body, soul, and spirit. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Aren't you glad that your salvation is not based on your feelings? Your feelings change. You cannot base your faith on your feelings. You have to base your faith on the facts. Sound mind. Sound doctrine. Sound words. <coughs> sound speech. And then you base your faith <coughs> on the facts. You know what the facts do? It produces the right feelings. It's all right to have feelings. Nothing wrong with feelings. You want to have feelings, <coughs> but you know what? <coughs> you don't want to be out of touch with your feelings. I've known people <coughs> that, were, that were soap opera junkies, that they watched, you know, as your stomach turns and, and, the, and the light and all those things, you know. And I've watched them sit down there when, when Mary left John and John left Sue and everybody down there and there's somebody there. And then I, I've watched them sit down there in front of a television set and just bawl, just cry. I've watched movies where, and I don't watch, I don't watch the animal planet. <coughs> Dogs, I'd much rather see 100 people killed in a big bomb blast than see a dog get hit in the road. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Shoot me if you want. But like Bob Jones Sr. said, more around people. Better I like dogs. Anyway, <coughs> and I don't watch it. I'd sit there and bawl like a baby. When, they, when I had to put my black lab down, I'll tell you what, it was, a, it was a dark day. I mean, I just wept and wept and wept. In fact, the doctor, he just patted me on the shoulder and says, you know, well, <clears throat> you just take all the time you need. Two days later, he said, can you leave now? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I didn't want to leave. <clears throat> that dog went with me. That dog was my friend, and I didn't have any friends. And boy, I laid that old black dog down there, and her looking up at me, those big old brown eyes, and her licked my hand when that doctor puts that needle into her and me holding her head, because she ain't, it ain't one of these things where, as much as I want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put that dog in there and say, just put her down, and some stranger be there when she dies? Absolutely not. You crying? Oh, you know? God. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Get out of here. 
And I, and I remember putting that dog down there and he put that needle in there and she looked up at me and then her eyes just went closed. And I talked to my, and I cried 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 over a dog. And you know what really bothered me? And I love dogs. And I, you know, I, we all do. But you know what really bothered me? And it, it bothered me, but what am I going to do? I'm human like anybody else. I'm as frail and make mistakes. You know what bothered me? <clears throat> I probably drove by on the way home a hundred families that were dying and going to hell and never shed a tear over them. And I'm telling you, faith in the facts will always produce the right feeling. It'll keep you from wasting energy and expense and emotion on something that is worthless and miss the reality of life. We see so many people killed and murdered on TV that when we read about it in the paper, we see it on the news, it's just like, oh well. You know why young people go out there and have no problem killing somebody for initiation in a gang? <coughs> Or just walking up and capping somebody and taking $3 and thinking it's no big deal because their whole life, in this life we live in, life has been so devalued from everything that they've seen that there's no value in life. And just like there's no value in physical life to unsaved people, there's no value for spiritual eternity for life with saved people. Why? Faith, fact, and feeling. Faith and the facts will always produce <coughs> the right feeling. It's the ultimate goal for you and me. I told you, and I'll close with this. <clears throat> Once I understood, very early on in my life, with a man that God put in my life, and I try to be that to you, and I know I fail miserably, <clears throat> but I, I try. But I watched a man who I believed loved God and knew the Word of God better than any man on the planet. Now, obviously, he probably didn't. But to me, he was the Apostle Paul in my life. I lost my dad when I was 19 years old. And uh, you know what? If he stepped in and became the father to me that I needed at that point. And he, he, he brought me to the point where he built into me the things that I needed. And my whole life, as I was growing up as a young man, God spoke to me very early and told me, I got something for you to do. Now, I was like a lot of you. I didn't know what that was. But I realized that it didn't matter what, I, what it was because I knew no matter what it was, I had to have the same things in my life no matter what I did. So I went to work for him, and I let him show me, teach me, correct me, <coughs> yell at me. <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> he put me under duress much more than I put you under. <clears throat> I told you the story that <clears throat> when I was <clears throat> coming to the point where I was, uh, been in there a couple of years now, you know, and feeling my oats, and my zeal was there, my knowledge maybe wasn't up to par, <clears throat> and I get this chance to preach, and I'm preaching at a youth rally, you know, and there's like four or five hundred kids there. And I'm up there going to town, you know, and it's big time Bob, you know, in my debut. And I'm up there <clears throat> and I'm preaching. And there was something in Genesis and I quoted it wrong. And right in the middle of my sermon with four or five hundred people there, he stood up in the front and he said, book, chapter, verse. And I said, what? He says, the verse you just quoted, book, chapter, verse. And I went back there when I looked it up and I said, well, here it is. And I read it. And I quoted it wrong. In front of four or five hundred people. You know what he did? He pointed that bony finger at me. It was always tough to tell which was more bony, his nose or his finger. But they both were pointing to me at that particular point in time. <laughs> and he said, young man, if you're going to preach the Word of God, then preach it correctly. Now, if I do that to some of you, well, you'd leave the church and go be an ecstatic Mormon someplace. You'd be all hurt. You'd say, he's picking on me. Well, you'd be embarrassed and you'd be hurt. You'd be mad and you'd be this and you'd be that. You know what I was? 
Years later, I look back on that and I attribute my exactness as well as I can be, and I miss it too sometimes, but in what I teach and what I do and my exactness, I attribute to that point right there where a man had the guts to stand up and hold me accountable in the midst of four or five hundred people in my preaching. That taught me something. Taught me something. I wouldn't even try to do that today because I know you can't, the quality's not there. You can't do it. Oh, there may be some examples you could, but I would even feel bad in doing it. I don't think, <coughs> you know, the joke was that when they do transplants, you know, when Mel died, Gene, his wife, had signed him up for organ donations. We all laughed and said, well, they'll get his kidneys, they'll get his brain, and they'll get his, maybe his, his liver, <coughs> but they'll have a tough time finding his heart. <laughs> sound doctrine, sound mind, sound words sound speech, producing a sound faith. He told me this. Once he he taught me the Bible, once I realized that I had these five things in my life and nothing could shake my faith, once I knew the Bible, once I knew I had a sound faith, then he told me the thing that you need to do is you need to get your hands on every worldly book that's out there. You need to study science. You need to study history. You need to study everything you can get your hands on and then relate it back to the one book that you now know as the guide by which what is truth and what is error. That was the greatest advice he ever gave me. And I, 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 once I got sound in my faith that nothing was going to shake what I believed, then I started to read every book I could find. You know, the other night we talked about nuclear structure on a Thursday night. You know where I learned all that? I learned that by reading books on nuclear fission and nuclear structure, already knowing what the Bible said. You've heard me lay out about the universe. You've heard me lay out about the constellations and about the planets and about the stars. You know why? Because I devoured every book I could get my hands on on astrology. You've heard me talk about Perseus and Andromeda and uh, 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 all of the constellations, Arius and Argo the Ark and all the mythology. You know why? Because I read every book I could get my hands on on Greek mythology knowing and then ran it through the book. In other words, once I was firmly ingrained that this book here was the truth and all truth derived from this book, Then I read everything I could get my hands on, never now to be shaken in this book, but running everything I read back through this book. And what it does in your life, it gives you the perspective of everything that's out there from God's standpoint. And that's where you need to get to in life (coughs) once you build this progression. Growing up to a perfect man, growing up to the stature and the measure of Christ, growing into Him, be everything God wants you to be and then learning everything you can and running it through this book. You see, most people (coughs) learn everything they can around the book. I learn everything I can through the book because I believe that this book is the absolute, infallible, perfect, inspired Word of God, God's gift to man, God's mind to man that tells man everything he needs to know that God wants him to know. And my job as pastor (coughs) is to take you, (coughs) who will let me, And as a pastor and a teacher, perfect you for the work of the ministry to get you ready that in everything that you do, the body of Christ gets edified. And you do it putting these five things in your life, becoming sound in everything that you do. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, Father.